You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. You open them up to John chapter 1 and we'll be looking at John 1, 35 through to 51. And Lord, as we open up your word again this morning, we also open up our hearts and our minds to hear you speak to us, Lord. We invite you, Lord, to reveal truth to us today by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If I would ask you, to follow me, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, yes. For those who don't know me very well in this, these days of social media, I suspect you might ask the question, follow you on what? Twitter, Facebook, Instagram? Those who know me better, though, would realise that in the matter of social media, I live somewhere between the Cretaceous era and Jurassic Park. (laughs) I've never had a social media account of any form. But to say I have zero interest in social media, however, would not be quite accurate. No, in actual fact, I have at least three times that much interest. (laughs) Some people get it. (laughs) I recognise there's value in social media, It helps people to stay connected with each other in far-flung parts of the earth. It allows people to make announcements, sometimes important, sometimes trivial, to large numbers of people at the same time. It's even brought old friends back together after decades of estrangement. So to follow someone on social media is not necessarily a bad thing. But as you're all aware, social media has also done enormous amounts of harm. It seems to be used increasingly as a platform for cowards to bully others and sometimes bully them to suicide. It also seems to be used far too much by people pushing personal and social and political agendas and ideologies, giving the illusion that they have far more support for their ideology than they have in reality. We've seen elections influenced by social media. We've seen businesses make decisions based on Twitter campaigns rather than on principles and policies that should guide their business. None of this is healthy. But when Jesus says, follow me, not only is it healthy, it's the only sensible thing to do. It's the only safe thing to do. In our next passage in John's Gospel, we see Jesus calling and choosing his first followers. So in verse 35, John 1. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. 
Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The first two of Jesus' followers were directed to him by John the Baptist. One of them was Andrew, the other one isn't named here. With a bit of detective work we can figure out who that other person is and it turns out the other one is referred to a number of times in John's Gospel it is never named the closest we get to a name is a description used five times through John's Gospel to call him the disciple Jesus loved. That disciple, it turns out, is none other than John, the author of this Gospel. So anyway, Andrew and John begin to follow Jesus and in verse 38 we see Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. What are you seeking? Jesus asked them. It's a good question for us to ask ourselves. What are we seeking when we turn to Christ? What are we hoping to get from him? Peace, comfort, power, forgiveness, happiness? He provides all of those things, but what's our motive? What's the driving force behind us seeking him initially and continuing to seek him daily? Is it merely our own happiness? Is it merely our convenience? Throughout the Gospels, we see people seeking Jesus for different reasons. Some sought him because they wanted their bellies filled again. Some sought him to kill him. Some to stone him and arrest him. Some, Mary Magdalene and some of the other women, went to his tomb to seek him because they loved him. Why do you and I seek him? Are we seeking to be changed by him? Granted, when a person first begins to follow Christ, they may not know quite what it is that they seek from him. They may not know quite what is on offer in the invitation to follow him. But if your Christian life continues to be one of seeking only health and wealth and happiness from him, you're living a stunted and immature Christian life. What do you do when times get tough? Do you abandon him like so many in the Gospels did? They followed him when he was saying, 
and doing things that they liked, but when he said something they didn't like, they abandoned him in droves. Even poor old Job recognised that following God involves good times as well as bad times. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity, Job said? No, we must seek him because we love him. We must seek him for who he is, not for what he can give us. Seek the giver, not the gift. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, Jesus said. Rabbi, teacher, Andrew and John said to him, right from the beginning, these two men acknowledged their need of someone to teach them, someone to lead them. They recognised their inadequacies, their lack of understanding, their need to learn. So a question, a challenge for each of us, to what extent have we made Jesus our teacher? To what extent have we submitted our lives to him and to his word? Can we see evidence of growth in our knowledge of him? Can we see evidence of growth in our obedience to him? Have we grown in our love for him? If not, why not? What have we neglected to do? Where are you staying? They asked him. In those days, a follower, a disciple, would live with their teacher to learn from him, to watch him, to not only hear his words, but to see how he lived his life. This demanded a full-time commitment. They weren't going to evening classes or doing online training. They were in it boots and all. We can't sit at Jesus' feet to learn from him today, not in a physical sense anyway, but we can still observe his life. We can still learn from his words in the Bible. For the Bible reveals Jesus in greater clarity than even his first followers had at the time. And we have another teacher, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, The help of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Following Christ should be a full-time commitment for us. It's not an add-on to our daily life. It's not something we turn up to do on a Sunday morning. It must be a daily reality and a daily commitment for each and every one of us. The next person to follow was Peter, Andrew's brother, the man who was to become the most famous of Jesus' followers. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. When he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The name Peter, as I'm sure you all know, means rock. I'm sure Peter didn't realise it at the time, but Jesus wasn't just changing his name, he was changing his purpose. For Peter was going to need to be a person of strength, of stability, of courage to face the persecution and the death that was to come his way for following his Lord and his Master. The next follower was Philip. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip was the first one to receive the direct call of Jesus. It seems Philip didn't hesitate 
Instead, he turned turned to follow Jesus immediately. So what was it that caused Philip to respond so promptly? Remember, some in the, in the Gospels were called to follow him and replied, let me bury my father. Let me check out the oxen I've bought. Let me say farewell to my family. They had priorities that to them were more important than following Jesus. But we're never told why Philip responded without hesitation, but we do know that it wasn't anything to do with Jesus' physical appearance or his charismatic personality. For Isaiah said prophetically back in Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Maybe, just maybe, it has something to do with what Jesus says later in John's Gospel. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Then the first thing Philip does is go out and find his friend Nathaniel. Verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel, as you'll recall, is a little sceptical at first. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, he said. Philip says, come and see for yourself. Seems to me that there's nothing wrong with inviting people to take some time to check out Jesus and consider him. So much of society, so many of our friends are sceptical. Let's invite them to see for themselves. Jesus himself said, come and see. If he is truly the man and if he is truly the God that we say he is, we can trust him to reveal himself to them in due course and in whatever way he wants to reveal himself. In this passage in John, we've seen five of the original band of 12 disciples begin to follow Christ. There's another seven who make up the original 12. We only know how one of those seven were called. The the Bible tells us nothing about the call of any of the others. We can only speculate. Matthew, also known as Levi, was the despised tax collector. He was busy at work ripping off his fellow citizens when Jesus saw him and said, follow me. Matthew immediately abandoned it all to follow. Matthew is probably the most highly educated of the original band of disciples and uh, is the author of the gospel of his name. James, the son of Zebedee, the son of Thunder, was the brother of the disciple whom Jesus loved, the brother of John. We don't know how James was called, but we could speculate that John introduced him. There's Thomas, poor old doubting Thomas. Again, we know nothing about the call of Thomas to follow Christ. The poor man's been saddled with that nickname for 2,000 years because he was so sceptical and even pessimistic about the resurrection of Christ. But when he was confronted with the evidence, what was his response? He declared, my Lord and my God. And he never wavered from his commitment to Christ. The others called to follow were James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James, also known as Thaddeus, and Judas Iscariot. Interesting, isn't it, that there doesn't seem to be any one way to become a follower of Christ, to come to Christ. 
simple fact that the Bible chooses to tell us nothing about how half the original disciples came to be followers of Christ suggests to me at least that we can't be too dogmatic about how the call to Christ, follow Christ must happen. God seems to be much more flexible than we sometimes are. Sometimes the call comes through the word of another person like John the Baptist that causes a person to turn away from the path they are on and turn to Christ. Sometimes it needs nothing more than that word. Sometimes it happens because we've gone to a family member or a friend like Andrew and Philip did and told them about Christ and invited them to come and see for themselves. Sometimes it comes about by the direct word of Christ himself. I'm sure many of you have heard stories about uh, people in Muslim countries who have not heard the gospel having dreams of Christ and become converted, become Christians in hostile territory because they've dreamed of Christ and been called directly to follow Christ through a dream. Jesus found Philip and called him to follow. He saw Matthew, the despised tax, tax collector at work, and said, follow me. He confronted Paul directly, knocking him to the ground and saying, why do you persecute me? Like so much of what God does, there's variety. He hasn't given us a step-by-step manual of how to become a follower of Christ. Rather, he uses different means and different people in different times and different places to achieve his goal. So also there's no one type of person that Jesus Christ calls to follow him. Several of his first followers were fishermen, ordinary tradesmen, uneducated but hard at their work at the time. One of them, Matthew, was a businessman, although hated by all and sundry. Paul, who heard the call later on, was a highly educated religious leader. There's some reason to believe that Nathaniel was of royal descent. The call to follow Christ reaches down to the lowest of the low, to the common, ordinary, unrefined person, and extends right through to businessmen, to highly educated people, to religious leaders, to royalty. No one is excluded from the call to follow Christ. What's common to all of them is that they all, without exception, oh sorry, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, suffered for their commitment to follow Christ. Judas suffered instead for his rejection of Christ. What the Bible doesn't tell us about most of them, although Jesus did warn them, is that they would all suffer terribly for their faith and all of them, without exception, did. They would be rejected, they would be imprisoned, they would be beaten, they would be murdered for following him. The only one to die of old age was John, the one whom Jesus loved, the author of this gospel. But even he suffered terribly for much of his life. The Bible, history and tradition tells us that the other disciples were beheaded, sawn into pieces, hung, speared, crucified. Is this really the cost of following Christ? Not for us in safe and free Australia. The worst we're likely to face is mockery and rejection by friends and family. Thank God for that. We should thank God for that. And we should fight to maintain that freedom. But for millions of believers around the world, torture and death is what faces them when they commit to follow Christ. 
And yet so many choose to do it willingly. They choose to follow Christ knowing that death is the certain result. Why? What would cause someone to give up their families, their comfort, their safety, their life to follow this man? Could it be that this man is more than a mere man? Could it be that he is really what he claims to be? Creator and sustainer of the universe. Emmanuel, God with us. The Lamb of God, the one and only mediator between God and man. Could it be that when he says that he alone has power to forgive sins, he's telling the truth? Could it be that he came, he lived, he died, he rose again to reconcile us to God, just as the scriptures tell us? Could it be that his promise of putting an end to sin is true? Could it be that his promise to give all who would put their trust in him an eternal future without pain, suffering or tears is genuine? It's certainly no less than this and it is much, much more. The call to follow Christ can only be correctly interpreted by the context. To follow someone on social media is to follow someone on a journey normally without any destination. Who sets up a Twitter account with a goal in mind, a destination in mind? If you were to tour the cafes and alleyways of this great city of Melbourne, now the world's second most livable city, I can't believe that when they did that survey, didn't they take account of the 100,000 people they're going to pack into the, the MCG for the grand final soon? Didn't they know about our cafe and restaurant culture here? Don't they know about the mighty Yarra River, the river that runs upside down? You haven't heard that? Yarra River, the river that runs upside down. It's dirtier on top than the bottom. <laughs> the mighty Yarra. But if you're on one of those tours around the cafes and alleyways of Melbourne and, and the, the call was to follow me, you'd know that you're on a journey that's going to come to an end shortly. If you're on a battlefield in the war zone, and the call was follow me, that would tell you you're about to embark on a journey through danger. That journey might be to rest and safety, and it might be to engage the enemy. But it's a dangerous journey. When Jesus says follow me, he's about to take you on that journey through a war zone. That's something to look forward to, isn't it? The war zone is the society we live in a world that is hostile to Christ and to his followers. But Jesus will take you safely through that war zone to your final destination, joy, peace and comfort in his presence eternally. But make no mistake, it is a war zone. He's calling you to follow him into battle. Have you counted the cost? That cost might not be what you'd hoped for. It almost certainly won't be what you were dreaming for. Jesus didn't tell people to count the cost before they didn't Jesus tell people to count the cost before they embarked on a building project or onto a battle? Didn't he tell them they would have to forsake mother and father to follow him? 
In fact, Jesus was even stronger in his language than that. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The same passage in Luke tells us that any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Strong words. Jesus never sugarcoated the cost of following him. Have you checked yourself lately to see whether you're prepared to make those sacrifices to follow him? If not, you need to do it today. For it may just reveal to you whether or not you are truly following him or whether you're just going through the motions. It's frightening to think that there will be some who stand before him on judgment day thinking they were Christians because of their lifestyle or their good behaviour or even because of the miracles they performed in his name, only to hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If that thought terrifies you, it should. Go home and read Matthew 7. Search your heart and see if you're truly a follower of him. If you have doubts about how genuine your relationship with Jesus Christ is, I call on you today to make it certain. Put your trust in him, not in your good works, not in your efforts, not even in your faithful church attendance, not in how much you give to good causes. Put your trust in him. Don't even count on your effectiveness in ministry to save you. For it's only Christ, crucified, buried, dead and now risen, who can save us. And he promises to save all who would put their trust in him. He makes no offer of salvation to anyone else. But if you find your faith is genuine, if you find your relationship with him is real, if you find you're willing to pay the price to follow him, then rejoice. Hebrews says of Jesus that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There is joy set before each and every one of us who make that commitment to follow him. But be warned, it may mean a cross, figuratively or literally. It may mean your life, but there is a joy to follow. The first disciples endured great persecution and brutal deaths to follow their Lord. Many of the reformers of the 1500s and the 1600s were willingly burnt at the stake for the joy that Christ had already given them and had promised to them in eternity. And believers in many countries in the world today face a similar future at the hands of their governments and local religious leaders. It's only in the West where we wonder why no one likes us. It's only in the West that we get upset because it's not meant to be this hard. Believers in other countries get it because that's their daily reality. Someone has said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. History seems to bear that out, for even the most brutal persecution seems to be unable to stop the growth of the church. Their blood cries out to God from the very soil it's spilt on. These believers, these blessed martyrs, plant their hope in the words of Jesus. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, 
when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of me. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward in heaven is great. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.